On July 12, 1989, Richard Clark Johnson was leaving work in Bedford, Massachusetts. When he got to the parking lot, he found two men in his car trying to take out his dashboard. He cornered them and someone called the police. But just as the cops pulled up, the men breaking into his car identified themselves as FBI agents and arrested him. Richard Johnson was an electrical engineer with government security clearance. He worked at a large defense contractor called MITRE. But it turned out that he was also part of a ring of technicians and computer scientists who were helping the Irish Republican Army create homemade weapons. When the FBI arrested Johnson and his co-conspirators in 1989, they were working on an ambitious pet project, a homemade guided missile capable of bringing down a British helicopter. I'm Nate Levy, and this is Foreign Agent. In this bonus episode, we're going to look at two American attempts to develop weapons technology for the Irish Republican movement. We'll go from below the waves in the world's first modern submarine to the skies over County Tyrone. Since the mid-1970s, Johnson had been working with an electronic systems engineer in Ireland named Peter McGuire. They traded letters on how to improve the IRA's remote control bombs, these explosives figured in some of the IRA's most well-known attacks. On August 27, 1979, one of these led the NBC Nightly News. Earl Mountbatten was killed today. The Irish Republican Army said it was responsible and called it an execution. He was a great figure in British and Western history, a hero in World War II, a grandson of Queen Victoria, cousin of Queen Elizabeth, the last viceroy of India, hugely admired by the British people. He and his family, on a vacation in Ireland, set out on a small boat on a fishing trip. A bomb blew up the boat, killing him, his grandson, a local fisherman, and four others aboard were injured. This was actually only part of the attack. Just after the boat exploded, the IRA detonated two more remote-controlled bombs, hitting a British convoy. This is an RTE report from the day after. Last night's death toll was the worst suffered by the British Army in any single incident in the 10 years they've been here. The 18 deaths make yesterday the worst single day of violence in the North since the present wave of troubles began. Six of the soldiers died in the first explosion when a bomb in a lorry loaded with straw was detonated by remote control as they drove past. The second explosion followed about 20 minutes later. This time the bomb had been hidden in a gate lodge opposite Narrowwater Castle a couple of hundred yards down the road. These remotely controlled bombs often used a device called a tone frequency switch. These allowed IRA volunteers to set them off from a distance. They used a radio transmitter that broadcast a special combination of chimes that armed and then detonated the bomb. After a number of explosions, a few of these switches were found intact. The model numbers on the devices were traced back to a batch that had been bought by Richard Johnson. This earned him a few visits from the FBI, and they kept him under surveillance. This eventually led them to an Irish electrical engineer named Martin Quigley. Quigley was also an IRA volunteer living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, passing himself off as a university student. 
He needed some help on a special project. He was working on a new missile system for the IRA, capable of bringing down a British helicopter. In rural Republican strongholds of Northern Ireland, the IRA ruled the ground, but the British Army ruled the air. Shooting down British helicopters would make whole areas of the countryside ungovernable. It would be a major escalation of the conflict. The IRA had gotten a shipment of surface-to-air missiles from Libya. By the 1980s, Colonel Gaddafi was a major supplier of the IRA, providing them with everything from Semtex explosives to grenade launchers. But the missiles he sent them were old and didn't work the way that they were supposed to. If the IRA wanted to shoot down a helicopter, they were going to have to make their own missiles to do it. They turned to Martin Quigley and Richard Clark Johnson to lead a covert R&D team based out of the United States. But it wasn't the first time that Irish Republicans had looked to America for innovative and experimental technology. The most ambitious example was the Fenian Ram, the world's first modern submarine. Michael Flannery, who we met in episode two, was one of the founders of Irish Northern Aid. He was born in rural Tipperary, and his grandfather had been a member of the Fenians, which was also called the Irish Republican Brotherhood. This was a forerunner of the Irish Republican Army. And the Fenians attempted a rebellion in 1867, but it was a total failure. They also tried military action outside of Ireland. In 1866 and 1871, they mobilized Irish-American veterans of the U.S. Civil War. They launched border raids on British forts in Canada, and these were not great successes either. Throughout the late 1800s, the Fenians remained pretty active in North America. Just like with NORAID, they developed an organization in the United States that raised funds for the Republican cause. And they were also looking for weapons. Not just guns and bombs, but much more experimental weapons too. In fact, you could say that $4,000 from the Fenians was the down payment on the world's first modern submarine. They had created what they called the skirmish fund, and that's actually what they decide to use to pay Holland. So they give him initially $4,000 to do what they consider to be a smaller version um, of his submarine designs. And that is literally just for him to prove to them that they're not wasting their money. It's not going to sink and like whoever goes down and it isn't going to die. This is Heather Garside, the curator of history at the Patterson Museum. And the Holland she's talking about is John Holland, an Irish immigrant and engineer. Holland had come to the United States in 1873 and lived in Patterson, New Jersey. He'd been playing around with ideas for submersibles for years. He actually tried to get the Navy interested in his designs. And all of the sailors and the captains and the high Navy officials were like, no one is going to go. No real sailor is going to submerge underwater in a boat. That's just not what we do. That's just not, you know honorable or safe or, you know, appropriate. So the Navy was not remotely interested um, in what he was trying to do. So he was really sort of stuck and searching because he was ready to go to a, a physical prototype and he just didn't have the money to cover that. In 1876, Holland found a patron. The Fenians were looking for a way to make a sneak attack on British naval targets. So they ponied up the money for him to make a prototype. It was called the Holland One. It's in the Patterson Museum's collection, and it's pretty small. It honestly looks like an iron coffin with a porthole. 
he did a test in May of 1878 in the Passaic River here and in Patterson, and things didn't go well. Um, the boat sort of sunk and wouldn't come back up on its own, which was part of the sort of stipulations. So he had to actually have it pulled out um, and, you know, emptied out. And he took it back to the drawing board and he worked on it some more. He did a second test a few months later, and that one went a little better. Good enough that the Fenians decided to pay him for a much bigger version, one that held three people. Now, Holland didn't just make his prototype three times bigger. He was experimenting, updating his designs, and changing the position of the machinery to make diving easier. It's kind of weird for us to think of today, but they would have originally always thought of submarines as descending straight down and then sailing straight across, um, always in an L, always straight lines. And he develops what's called the porpoise dive, so they go down at a diagonal angle. Um, And that also just sort of helps with all that, that buoyancy. So that's really important. That sort of porpoise dive concept was new to Holland's design. And then handling the vessel underwater was another really big, important thing. All previous submarines had always involved human power of some form, either a hand crank or feet cranks. Um, He started experimenting with using diesel engines and then rechargeable batteries. Holland's second prototype was too big for the Passaic River. So he started doing his tests out on the Hudson, which runs down the western side of Manhattan. It must have been an astonishing sight for people watching from the shore. This mustachioed man in a bowler hat, sailing up and down one of the most famous waterways in the world, and every once in a while, disappearing below the surface. He's doing things like testing how deep he can go, how long he can stay under at different depths and things like that. And while he's doing that, he also immediately starts working on the Holland Three, which the Fenians also pay for. He's sort of working on both of them simultaneously. That's when um, the Fenians start to get a little, some of the Fenians get particularly annoyed that they're wasting all this time. They sort of think that the Holland II is good enough for what it's for, so let's just use it. Holland started to come under pressure, not just from the Fenians. The press had their eye on him, too. Now, even though the submarine was intended for a sneak attack against the British, it's not like he kept it a secret. The New York Sun ran articles about Holland and openly mocked him and the whole idea of a submarine. They jokingly called his ship the Fenian Ram, and the name stuck. Holland wanted to perfect his design to get diving, air circulation, and torpedo placement just right. But the Fenians weren't interested in perfection. There's a whole faction of the Fenians that get really frustrated with how long it's taking, and they feel that they've got the weapon and it's all set. So um, they decide in the dark of night to go to the dock, and they actually steal both the Holland II and the Holland III. And so what they do is they sail it away to Connecticut. And in the process of sailing it away to Connecticut, they screw up and they forget to close one of the portholes in the Holland 3. And it actually sinks somewhere in like Long Island Sound. Um, And it's still, no one knows exactly where it is. They kind of vaguely have an idea. But the Holland 2 survives and they take it up a small river um, outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And essentially they dock it there for a little bit and then they put it in dry dock in someone's shed. As you might have guessed, Holland ended his partnership with the Fenians after they stole his submarines and accidentally sunk one. But he continued to work on subs and eventually sold his designs and prototypes to the U.S. Navy, the Japanese Navy, 
and, ironically, the British Navy. The Holland II, his second prototype, sat in Connecticut for years. And it hangs out there until someone sort of remembers it uh, when they're planning a bazaar in Madison Square Garden, uh, which is intended to raise money for the victims of the Easter Rising. This was in 1916, 33 years after it had been stolen and two years after Holland had died. And I've never actually seen like what they charged, but I think the implication is pay five cents and see the Fenian Ram. Um, And so in October of 1916, they get it out of storage and take it to Madison Square Garden. And it's on display as a part of this bazaar as this great Irish nationalist symbol of America. The sub got passed around for a few years to various institutions, but it ended up in a park in Patterson, New Jersey. So I think it came sometime in the, probably in the fall of 1927. Um, And then it stayed in Westside Park for decades and went through all of the things you would expect an outdoor memorial to go through. It was, you know, vandalized and spray painted and at one point painted completely yellow in honor of the Beatles. And finally in uh, 1980, they decide that they're going to relocate it to this building, which is the Thomas Rogers Locomotive Erecting Shop. It's been in the Patterson Museum's collection ever since. Unlike the Fenian submarines, the homemade surface-to-air missile was never actually built. But this wasn't for lack of effort. Martin Quigley spent hours in a local university library studying engineering and rocketry. He asked Richard Johnson to design the fuse system while he worked on a computer program to guide the missile. He got help from an American computer science grad student named Gerald Hoy, who was sympathetic to the Republican cause. Quigley also encouraged Christina Reed, an electrical engineer and NORAID member, to join hobby rocket clubs and to research rocket motor design. It was all pretty cloak and dagger. They talked on payphones and met at highway rest areas. They used code words and fake names, but they couldn't shake the FBI. Undercover agents followed the team wherever they went. They steamed open their letters at the post office, copied them, and then sealed them up again. They even tapped hundreds of payphones just to catch a glimpse of what they were saying. The FBI also broke into Johnson's car and placed a recorder in his dashboard. This is what they were trying to get when Johnson stumbled onto them in the parking lot. One FBI agent told him, Only in America do you interrupt two men breaking into your car and find that you are the one who is arrested. With the surveillance blown, agents in Pennsylvania swooped down on the rest of the team. They were charged with violating a slew of laws, including an obscure statute against possessing property in support of foreign insurgents. NORAID, of course, rallied to their defense. Members posted their bail and held fundraisers across the country. At the trial, the defense argued that their clients were simply interested in electronics and that no bombs or missiles were even made. But this didn't convince the jury. All of them were found guilty. The case was appealed, and the government was represented by Ken Starr. He became infamous for heading up the investigation that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment in 1998. In 2007, he also joined the defense team for the billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, who was accused of raping and trafficking underage girls. Bizarrely, Alan Dershowitz, another lawyer who defended Jeffrey Epstein, was also involved in the appeal, except on the other side, defending Richard Clark Johnson. He argued that the warrants the FBI obtained were unconstitutional, but it didn't fly, and they had to do the time. 
Hoy was sentenced to two years, Reed to three years and five months, Quigley got eight years, and Richard Clark Johnson got 10. Norid gave Reed and Johnson a hero's welcome when they got out. Martin Quigley was repatriated to Ireland in 1996 as part of the peace process. In the end, neither the Fenian Ram nor the DIY missiles were ever put to use against the British, but they showed that material support from the United States could get pretty imaginative. But the goals were strategic, and their execution based in real technology. And that technology could be a source of hope. A hope, however unfounded, that Irish Republicans could harness the power and technical ingenuity of the United States in order to go head-to-head with the British Armed Forces. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarra Media, and music is by Matt Huxley. In researching this episode, we relied heavily on a book by A.R. Oppenheimer called IRA, The Bombs and Bullets, A History of Deadly Ingenuity. If you follow us on social media, you'll have noticed that we're currently asking our listeners, readers and viewers to support Navarra Media with a monthly donation from as little as £1. Over 10,000 of you listen to our podcasts each and every month, and we can't produce a single second without our regular supporters. So if you've ever thought about supporting us, now's the time to visit navarramedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from £1 a month. Back truly independent journalism and become a regular supporter today. We can't do this without you.